What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner, and today I'm going to play for you a live stream, part of a live stream that I did on October 12th, 2022. And in here, I go through a tweet thread where uh, somebody in the Ethereum community is trying to compare Ethereum's issuance to Bitcoin's issuance, say that uh, Bitcoin's arguments are wrong because Ethereum is proof that lowering, lowering issuance doesn't matter for price, etc., etc. So, of course, I fundamentally disagree with this, and there's a lot of stuff to get into. If you want to join these live streams, live streams, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. I've been doing these as Twitter Spaces, but the primary location is on Telegram. So t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets to join that channel and to join the live streams there. Also, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Sign up for the free weekly newsletter, become a member, then you can have full participation in the Telegram channel, and you get all the recordings of all of my live streams. I put it up on a member drive for people. So, all right, thanks for joining. I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Let's dive in. Okay, let's take a look at this tweet thread. It is from Eric Wall. And I'll post the link again in the Telegram group. It's from a couple days ago. Let's see, October 8th, so four days ago. And Eric Wall, I haven't followed him a lot over the years. Um, I know he's been around for a very long time. He might have been in like a Bitcoiner before Ethereum came out. Then he became a Ethereum person. I don't know what to call them. I try not to be do the same tricks that they do. You know, they use pejoratives like maxi. It's just, it's actually kind of dumb. It makes them look stupid, but <laughs> it makes them look vindictive, right? And and mean to call someone a maxi. Anyway, I try not to do that. I don't know if it matters. But in this thread, he's talking about the issuance of Bitcoin versus the issuance of Ethereum. And he's putting them as, you know, peers, as, as, a level playing field here that, that there should be considered the same thing, right? So we're going to read through this and I, I have some stuff about why he's crazy. <laughs> okay. Uh, the merge resulted in a massive issuance rate reduction of ETH from 4.1% down to 0.2%. I think if Bitcoiners don't believe this is going to have a positive impact on the ETH price, it becomes hard to argue that uh, BTC halvings in the future would either which are much smaller. So first and foremost, all goods, whether they're money, any, any type of good, can have a temporary reduction in supply. So saying that Ethereum went from 4.1% down to 0.2% means nothing on the grand scheme of things, okay? It means nothing because every single good can have that same thing. And you could have a temporary uh, price fluctuation, like I was talking about with oil. You can have a temporary price fluctuation, but then the long-term trend comes back in. And the long-term trend for Ethereum is the same as all other altcoins. It really spiked up in the beginning, and it's been slowly bleeding out despite all of the efforts that they put into marketing these different um, ecosystem parts for Ethereum. It just continues to bleed out. 
So the long-term trend doesn't necessarily change because you change the supply. Um, this is an arbitrary change. This is definitely an arbitrary change for Ethereum. It is not permanent. It is temporary. Now, this differs from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin it has an immutable nature. The, the supply is immutable. The consensus rules are immutable. And those the consensus rules is what limits supply, not the developers. Huge difference. It also, in Ethereum, it has been conditioned in the community to change the supply or the supply issuance rate. So it has been conditioned in them to hard fork, to have a hard fork culture. Nothing is set. There is a minimum viable issuance, but that's subjective to who? The developers. And they have conditioned you to hard fork all the time. So that is why it is temporary, not immutable, like Bitcoin supply is actually fixed and immutable. All right, let's continue. As much as Plan B liked to LARP about unforgeable costs in this nonsense, we know, of course, this uh, that this doesn't matter. What matters is the issuance rate and the demand, not philosophical concerns uh, over how something was made. So unforgeable costliness is not a philosophical concern. See, that is what a non-adversarial thinker says. Ethereum people are notorious. They're infamous for not thinking adversarially. So unforgeable costliness is all about adversarial thinking. If something goes up in price, people will produce more of it. It will be counterfeit. They will produce substitutes like altcoins. All of these things are attacks against Bitcoin. But there has to be some sort of unforgeable costliness to attacking the network. So it's not a philosophical concern. It's actually an extremely physical concern. Can you counterfeit this? Can you change the supply? Can I trivially uh, validate that this is a legitimate token? Can I trivially validate the total supply? Can you trivially, trivially evaluate the total supply of Ethereum? No. You can't. So unforgeable costliness is not a philosophical concern. Um, what else do I have to say about this? Um, unforgeable costliness is protecting supply as demand increases. It is a fundamental bedrock of monetary reasoning. Thinking supply and demand is all there is, is pretty elementary. It does not take into consideration changes through time. So not only are they not thinking adversarially, but maybe that has to do with something about 4D thinking or, or thinking through time and how that this change in the present will affect, you know, the actions of people in the future. Uh, if you can't do that, then, yeah, of course, you're not going to understand unforgeable costliness and you're not going to understand stock to flow and stuff. So uh, that this this makes total sense. All right, guys, I am editing this little bit of audio and I noticed that I didn't really define unforgeable costliness so I'm going to do that here. I'm using the Bitcoin dictionary. This is my book that I put out a couple years back and 
I spent a lot of time on it. There's 180 terms that have to do with Bitcoin. Unforgeable costliness, of course, is one of them. So I'm going to read that definition. And then each word has a little mini, it's almost like a mini Wikipedia thing where I talk about how to apply this definition. How does Bitcoin, how do Bitcoiners think about these things? All right, so that's what I'm going to do here. And then we'll go back into the live stream audio. All right, here we are. Unforgeable costliness, a property of an object where its existence is highly improbable or it is very expensive to produce or both, while at the same time being trivial to verify its authenticity. Discussion. Unforgeable costliness is a trait found in things such as antiques, gold, Bitcoin, and time. It is very costly or impossible to replicate an antique with all of its history and age. Gold is expensive to mine and cannot be created artificially more cheaply. Time is limited and has mandatory trade-offs or opportunity costs depending on the ways in which it is spent. Bitcoin production is regulated algorithmically, controlling for time. While verifying the authenticity of an antique can be done, it is relatively more expensive than for gold or Bitcoin. The relative cost to verify authenticity makes a thing more or less unforgeably costly. I'll read that again. The relative cost to verify authenticity makes a thing more or less unforgeably costly. All goods with this trait fill some function of money well. Antiques are not a good unit of account, but they are a good store of value in many cases. A good must have other favorable characteristics to become more liquid and used as money, like Bitcoin. The utility of unforgeable costliness is its ability to cross trust boundaries. So this is the utility of unforgeable costliness. It crosses trust boundaries. A primary role of money for humans is to facilitate coordination through time and space. By minimizing trust, markets are able to scale more efficiently. All right, so that's that. Again, it is not a philosophical thing. It is an actual hardcore property of these goods. Back to the live stream audio. All right, let's continue. Supply demand is all. If changes like this don't work for ETH, it won't for BTC either. When it makes much smaller changes, like going from 1.6% to 0.8% and 0.8% to 0.4%, etc. So if changes like this don't work for Ethereum, so the, he admits this is a change for Ethereum. Changes, that's the key term. Bitcoin isn't changing. Bitcoin is continuing on its consensus rules. Its consensus rules have not changed, period. Each having, well, th this whole thinking and trying to put Bitcoin into the category of changing is what Ethereum people always do. Because if they don't do that, then they have to concede that Ethereum is centralized and arbitrary, which it is. Bitcoin is not. It does not change. Next part. Maybe you're finally ready to admit now that while emission rate variations are an ingredient in the mix, they are still underwhelming compared to overall market gyrations. It was trying to get Bitcoiners. I was trying to get Bitcoiners to acknowledge this in 2019 through 2021, mostly on ears unwilling to hear me out. Okay, fine. Um, variations. He says here, uh, emission rate variations. Yes, the emission rate 
is decreasing, but it is not being varied. Okay. It's not changing. It's the same. It's following a set schedule that doesn't change. It can't change. So it's a difference between saying something and showing something. So having's show people the immutable or unable to be changed supply schedule and fixed supply. So Bitcoin's promise is a fixed supply, but every having it shows that it is still immutable. It is still going. The supply schedule is still unchanged. That's what the having shows. That's showing versus saying. Ethereum wants to say we have 0.2%. It's going to stay at 0.2%. And we know that's not true. Minimum viable issuance. What happens if they think it's higher? They're just going to change it higher. And they've conditioned people to do that, to accept it. So it's completely different. The proof or the confirmation of the fixed supply, it reaches more people each time, either due to conditions in the market, like it is being... uh, Adoption is being expanded and more people are getting exposed or due to the individuals viewing it. Perhaps, you know, you are making your own personal journey and you're discovering own different uh, ideas about money and you stumble across Bitcoin. So it's either conditions in the market or conditions in the individual. Something changes and each time it goes through this cycle, the having drives its own publicity cycle, its own hype cycle, its own adoption cycle. Because it makes headlines, not because it changes anything, but because it it is interesting and it gets into people's minds and it's something to write about. And so it's it's written about a lot. It runs across more people's screens. More people might say, oh, I remember hearing about that back in 2017. It's still around. Oh, man, I'm going to look at that. Right. And so slowly but surely, it creeps into people's minds. And that's what the having does. That's why there is. I mean, there is an idea of a deflationary spiral that, um, what's his name, Tour de Meester put out there. And there is something to that, but it's, I don't want to talk about that here. That's a little bit a different topic. So it's mainly the hype cycle. It's mainly proving that the issuance is still fixed. The schedule is still fixed. And that's different than what Ethereum does. All right. You can't reverse this reasoning. So it's it's a process to by reversing the thinking and saying we're just going to set the inflation rate at x that's very low so we should reap the benefits of this very low issuance rate that's like reversing the process you're trying to get the the you're trying to get the outcome from not going through the steps right so if you just make a coin and it has a fixed supply say issuance of 1 billion and then no more but that's not how it works. Everything has a trade-off. Everything must go through a process. So Bitcoin's emission schedule was mainly for distribution. And it's distribution without trusted third parties. It's also a way to bootstrap proof of work and get more people into you know, decentralizing block production. It's not necessarily that the issuance rate has to do with inflation. The issuance rate is just a rate to get certain outcomes. It's the distribution and the bootstrapping. But it doesn't change the fixed supply. So that's why I've always said that Bitcoin has a fixed supply. 
it's actually not inflationary. It, you know, people say that we have the issuance out there and it, it's, uh, you know, started at 50% or whatever. And it's slowly going down. Now I think it's at like 1.6% or something like that. So 1.6% is the inflation rate. That's actually the issuance, but it's a weird thing because Bitcoin has a fixed supply and yes, it has an issuance rate, but that's almost like a, a budget for distribution of coins and a budget for bootstrapping proof of work. It's really not an issuance. Those Bitcoins are there. Those Bitcoins are already created. They just haven't been released yet into the system. So it's, it's kind of a halfway point between inflation and fixed supply at this point, but it, it is a fixed supply. I hope that, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but everything has trade-offs. So Bitcoins, let's see, I said that. I'm just reading my notes here. So this has to do with trade-offs. It has to do with adversarial thinking and once and and thinking through time. And once again, Ethereum people, you know, they want to say something as if it's true right now and reap the either the rhetorical points, you know, like I win this argument because I can say Ethereum has a 0.2% inflation. So they want to score the rhetorical points and think that has something to do with the price. But they don't understand that it's a process of trade-offs and adversarial thinking through time. It just, it, I think it's its very, uh, what, what term am I looking for? It's a great representation of how Ethereum people think. All right, let's continue here. So what do you think? Oh, uh, I wanted to say something about stock to flow, but maybe that's coming up here on this one. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think halvings will matter for Bitcoin, but a much larger one, the merge, won't matter for ETH? Or does either matter or both? So, okay, I think I already talked about that. Uh, halvings as an issuance cut do not matter. They only matter as a confirmation of the fixed supply, which Ethereum does not have and which cannot replicate. I can't confirm robustness to change by changing the rules. That's idiotic. All right, next one. Um, he's talking about Nick Carter and how Nick Carter got jumped on and kind of excommunicated for just saying stock to flow was not true. And so he's trying to, you know, rub this into Bitcoin Maximus's faces that, you know, everything has changed in the community. And it's true that some people have started questioning their assumptions about these things. But my idea of stock to flow is that plan B stock to flow was correct in principle. It's correct in principle that the higher the stock to flow, the higher that the, the value of that token will tend to be. But the problem is trying to put it in a mathematical relationship and trying to make sure that it's timed like to the year, to the date, to the month, whatever, that it's going to be at this price. That was the mistake. If he just would have left it, at, you know, a concept of stock to flow, the higher the stock to flow, the higher the value in principle, that is correct. The only way you can really disprove this principle of stock to flow is if Bitcoin doesn't continue to go up in a over several years, Bitcoin doesn't continue to go up. And right now we're kind of getting on the edge of that. You know, if Bitcoin 
say, dropped to 10,000 and stayed there for five years, I would say that stock to flow is getting very close to being um, debunked. But at this point, you know, it's not because Bitcoin could go up to 150, 200,000 in the next six months and boom, stock to flow is right back on track, even the mathematical function, right? Um, So no, the only way that stock to flow can be debunked is if you think Bitcoin will not ever go up in price. Like it won't continue this, you know, global adoption, even if it's delayed by 10 years. I mean, and then it gets back on track. That still can be confirmation of stock to flow, not the mathematical model, but the principle of it, right? So the principle is correct. And then what else does he point out? He says that, oh, everybody, (laughs) uh, I guess Francis, what's his name? from bull Bitcoin up there in Canada. And he threw Pierre under the bus that Pierre believed in stock to flow and no one else did. Well, I, I think Pierre would be similar to me in that he believes in the principle of stock to flow, not, not the mathematical formula. It was just amazing that it was so close to the mathematical formula for so long. But, you know, it, once you have a model, then people will trade against that model. Or they'll try to make that model, they'll, they'll front run that model, right? So maybe something like that happened here. Plan B got so popular. It got so, uh, you know, I think he had like, what, 2 million followers on Twitter or something like that. He got so popular, so well-known. This model got so well-known that people, at the minute that it uh, didn't keep up with the mathematical predictions, they said, oh, stock to flow is dead. But really, the principle is not dead. The principle is alive and well. All right, guys, I'm going to read through like I did earlier for Unforgeable Costiness. I'm going to talk about stock to flow. Once again, reading from the Bitcoin Dictionary. You guys can find this at BitcoinDictionary.cc or you can go to Amazon and find Bitcoin Dictionary by Ansel Lindner and it'll be on there. But like I said, I have all of these terms. They're very important to Bitcoin and you can really learn about how Bitcoiners think about these things, why they're important, etc. Really, I think the dictionary is the best way to up your learning curve. So if you're new to Bitcoin or if you want to get uh, understanding of these arguments, it's very precise. Uh, it's very short and digestible and you can get a kind of an, I mean, it's a little bit biased in that uh, I believe in Bitcoin, but it is not like a definition from within the argument that you're having or within the discussion or debate you're having. So you can get kind of a neutral definition here. All right. Um, stock to flow. The ratio between existing stockpiles of a good to the flow of new supply in a given period. That's the definition. Very simple. It is legitimate. It is a real thing. All right. Discussion. Stock to flow is used to quantify scarcity. <clears throat> Most textbooks definitions of scarcity define only a momentary property. The current available supply relative to the current demand at a market price. However, there is a fourth dimension, time. When predicting what will preserve purchasing power into the future, the most important dimension of scarcity is price elasticity. How much does supply respond relative to demand from changes in market price? Goods whose new production is small compared to stockpiles, 
typically have more stable market price and can confidently be held without the worry that their value will be diluted by a sudden increase in production. The smaller the stockpile relative to flow, the more easily purchasing power of that good can be diluted. In recent years, many statistical multi-asset studies have been done regarding the stock-to-flow ratio, showing statistically relevant results of the relation to market price. These findings have been used to predict the future price of Bitcoin very accurately. So that I, at the end there, I talk about the stock-to-flow model. And again, in theory, it is correct. In principle, I should say, it is correct. Uh, but I say it's statistically relevant results. So if you want to disprove stock-to-flow, you have to sh you know, show that it's not statistically relevant. And as we go on here, as price goes up in Bitcoin over the years, it is statistically, it will remain statistically relevant. Now, how accurate the model is, it's just a model uh, based on principles I think are correct. So anyway, that is it for the definitions. Let's get back into the live stream audio. Cheers. So anyway, that's what I had to say about Ethereum and Bitcoin and the issuance. Bitcoin is immutable, has a fixed supply, where Ethereum does not have a fixed supply. It has tail, uh, tail emission, right? It will continue to emit coins in perpetuity, and they have to do that. Um, I just, I'm waiting for that point where Ethereum finds out that they should increase their issuance. Because I think most of the second order type ecosystem on Ethereum is built off of Ethereum inflation. So it's like a pyramid scheme of, of inflation. And if you cut Ethereum, like the issuance of Ethereum down, you actually cut down the ecosystem dynamism, the dynamism of the ecosystem to create these other second order Ponzi schemes. And once they figure that out, then they will increase their issuance. And I'm just waiting for that day. So, all right. Today was more Bitcoin heavy because I have been doing a lot of stuff that's outside of Bitcoin for a long time. And I wanted to get back to the roots of Bitcoin maximalism and get, get into the conversation. Um, I did record something yesterday and I don't know if I'm going to release it publicly. I might just release it to members. So if you guys are Wanted to hear something. I, I listened to that Bure, uh, Borel speech from the EU ambassadors meeting on the 10th. And I comment throughout it, but it's like a two hour live stream or it's a two hour recording. And I just go way off on tangents. So I don't know if I want to actually release that publicly or to members, uh, but make sure you're signed up as a member. I appreciate everybody's ongoing support over there on bitcoinandmarkets.com. Also for the guys on Twitter spaces, uh, join the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Let's see. Anybody have their hand raised? Nope. All right. Well, that's where I'm going to end it today, guys. Thanks for joining me and I will catch you tomorrow. <laughs>